As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. And that's where they came up with what's called the hypostatic union, where Jesus is 100% God, but Jesus is 100% human. How does that work? Shut up. Doesn't make a ton of sense. It makes enough sense that we can threaten people if they don't agree with it. And so it is the, the institution of the church is the only reason that the concept of the Trinity survived, because without the Roman Empire and all of the might and the coercion and the force behind it, it would have gone the way of the dodo long, long ago. Hey, everybody, I'm Dan McClellan. And I'm Dan Beecher. And you are listening to the Data Over Dogma podcast, where we increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion and combat the spread of misinformation about the same. How are things, Dan? Rocking and rolling, man. Uh, I think this is, we're, we're, we're delving into one that's going to be uh, a, a powder keg. Yeah. We're getting, yeah, we're, getting this, we're getting into the good stuff here. This, this is, is uh on uh on social media, this is where I get the most pushback from folks. So Oh um, really? Yeah. Okay. Oh you yeah. Guys. I, it's surprising. Like it's not it's not that it causes like the biggest ruckus, but the people who are usually on my side about a lot of stuff when it comes to this will be like, mm, um, but I'm I'm still right. So <laughs> All right, everybody, prepare to push back. <laughs> this is gonna be a fun one. Uh and we'll start with uh the 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 first one. Look, I'm gonna start us off with an idea, and it is an idea that is so fundamental to so many Christians like religious cosmology that to say otherwise seems absurd. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what, before I present that, maybe you should just say your line. <laughs> All right, let's see it. Okay. He said it. That means we're, li we're, we're diving in. Uh, <laughs> the monkey has danced. <laughs> <laughs> Dance, monkey. Um, here's the idea. The idea is, so you actually came to me uh, when we were discussing. In the night. And then yes, yes. You, you came and visited me three times, and now visions I, by night. Yeah. Now, now I uh, I believe in Christmas. <laughs> um, no, you, what you said was I thought you were going. Now I'm digging up gold plates from a hill, but that you you took it a different direction. I, I, went, different I, direction, I went Dickens so okay. instead of Joseph Smith. So there, there we go. go. Okay. Uh, the idea what what you said was let's talk about the idea of if Jesus is God. In the book of John. So I took that to me. When I first thought about that, I was like, aha, Jesus is God in all the other books. And John's the one that's like this crazy outlier that doesn't seem to think <laughs> Jesus is God. And then I looked into it and I went, oh, oops, I'm completely wrong. John's the one. John yeah. is like yeah. the place. When you look up an article of is Jesus God? You're gonna get citations to John all the way down. So this, yeah. so I feel like Dan, you've got a tall order in front of you <laughs> in yeah. telling us how Jesus isn't God in the Book of John. Yeah, 
It is. So, uh, it's going to be. It's going to be uh, a ride. It's going to be a ride. Uh, yeah. Let's start off with John chapter one, verse one. We're starting right at the top of John. As as uh, the great poet once said, anarchy or <laughs> in the beginning. Let's start with the beginning. John one one, which in Greek is anarchy in hologos. Uh, in the beginning was the word. And the word was, means next to, with, beside God. And the word there has the definite article tone, which means the God. In Greek, you normally, if you're referring to a specific person or thing or place, you have to include a definite article. In English, we just have the. Uh, in Greek, you have a few different ones. But anyway, uh, that is God the Father. That is the God of Israel. And then you have the third clause in John 1.1, 1, 1, que theosino logos, which is translated in uh, the KJV in most translations, and the word was God. It doesn't yeah. say that. What? It doesn't okay. say that. And it I'm is even the, looking at the NRSV, <clears throat> yes. and it still says, and the word was God. Yes, and it doesn't say that. And it is the, and, and this is the part that that really infuriates people. It is the academic consensus of Greek grammarians that it does not say that. So uh, even the the very same Greek grammarians people appeal to to insist that Jesus is God will say this is not identifying Jesus as the very God of Israel. And here's why. There's no definite article here. The word theos comes before the to be verb. This is what's called a, a copula or a X is Y sentence where they're equating two things. Uh-huh. And the word God comes before the verb and the word comes after the verb. And in this kind of sentence, if there is a noun before the to be verb that is either... Um, has already been uh, mentioned in close connection or is well known, and both of those things are true of God, yeah. then it will take the definite article. So if this were a reference to the God of Israel, it would say, ke hotheos in hologos, and it simply does not, and there is no manuscript uh, that is thought to be anywhere near original Okay, uh, that says that. So I am, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to read the whole thing in English because you broke it up okay. a lot with the uh, with with the Greek. Right. So the whole thing says, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, mm-hmm. and the Word was God." Now, right. when we say the Word, we're right. not talking about the bird. The no. bird is not the Word in this case. No. That doesn't happen until the '60s, I think. <laughs> right. We're talking about Jesus. Jesus is the Word that we are talking about. Right. The Word become flesh. Right. Let's get back to that. So what you the 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 grammar thing that you just said went completely yeah. over my head. Okay, so we've um, got when it says the word was with God, that means the word was with the God of Israel. Was but, next to or yeah. a, a, adjacent was God of Israel adjacent. Yeah. And okay. and the use of theos in the final clause, however, is qualitative. Right. It's not definite. So it's not a reference to the God of Israel. It is a reference to the qualities Possessed by deity, so the so, word was godlike or god godlike god. Uh, well, <laughs> th- it's tricky because I I've said the best translation would probably be the word was deity. Oh, um, okay. and so the idea being the word was divine. 
Mm. Or the word was, and this is still within the realm of, of plausibility, the word was a God. Right. Now, a lot of people, that, that's how the New World Translation uh, renders it, and, and a lot of people really don't like that translation, and I am among them. But the idea is not Jesus is the God of Israel. The idea is the qualities that define deity, Jesus has those qualities. So more than just being divine, uh, the qualities of a God— uh, which would be, I, I would argue, would be what con- it means to be divine. But there, there's a, and, and so Daniel Wallace, who is a who's very well-known um, Greek grammarian and is, is a Christian scholar, um, he has pointed out this, this has to be qualitative. It is not uh, definite. But then he goes on to argue, here's how it's still Trinitarian. He argues huh. that Jesus is not, the God of Israel, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. And so it's not that Jesus encapsulate all that God is, it's that Jesus is another person of the Trinity, which is which is an argument that requires the logic of the Trinity, the notion of consubstantiality, the notion that God exhausts the category of deity, that you can have no deity apart from God. Right. These are all assumptions that would develop between the second and the fifth century CE as the Trinity developed. Okay, but calm down, because we're going to get to that later in the show. Yeah, we're going to get to that later in the show. But what? <laughs> but these assumptions, consubstantiality, these other things, did not exist when the Gospel of John was written. The, gospel, right. the author of the Gospel of John, using this word qualitatively as they are demonstrably doing, could not have been trying to say that Jesus was the second person of the Trinity because no such concept existed at the time. Okay. What the author of the Gospel of John is saying is that Jesus was deity. Jesus was divine. They're trying to get close to saying that Jesus was God without saying Jesus was God because... In this time period, Jesus had some kind of very special relationship to God that they hadn't really figured out how to articulate yet. They didn't understand it. It was it was still in kind of the, the realm of rhetoric. It had not yet been systematized. It had not yet been rationalized, and they had not come to an agreement on what exactly the nature of Jesus' relationship to God was. Does Is there a sense in it? Because... I, and I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want any uh, Christians to be offended by this comparison. But like, we, you know, the, we're in Greek times. There are plenty of examples of like a deity father, a, a god father, yeah. having a half mortal child, mm-hmm. and then it becoming a, you know, a a demigod, a, a you know, a, a a a being with god qualities that is mm-hmm. not a full God or whatever. Right. Do you, is, is there any, any hint of that in this or is that just not even referenced? Um, not really because while John is, is very well versed in, in Greek philosophy, not is he's not very concerned with Greek mythology. Okay. So the concept of God here is not a Zeus concept. It is more like a uh, platonic stoic concept, which is relevant because they had these ideas about the the word is, uh, the idea of the word of God in John is a little closer to the idea of the spoken word, something that is a part of me that comes out of me, that is an extension of my agency and my will and things like that, but is also semi-autonomous. It is 
out there. So there's there's a notion called emanation theology that the logos, the word, is an emanation from God. And this is um, more common in, in later centuries as well. But we see something kind of similar in Philo, a, uh, a Jewish author from um, the beginning of the first century CE, who also talks about the logos as an extension of God, but also refers to the logos as a second God. And so the... The uh, relationship of John's theology to the Greek world is closer to Greek philosophical contemplation than it is to, to Greek mythology. Okay. But it's, this is not to say that John is just stealing things from the Greco-Roman world. It is uh, what we have here is Greco-Roman period Judaism, which right. is both um, founded on... Judaism while also uh, accommodating uh, Greco-Roman thought. So it's okay. it's a combination of both kind of moving forward, trying to figure out how we're going to think about these things. And, and John's going to move from the beginning with kind of a, a more vague idea of Jesus, um, Jesus's relationship with God to a clearer expression of Jesus's relationship with God, but it doesn't come from the narrator and it doesn't come from Jesus, it comes from a third party. Um, well, and so let, let's, we're, we're, let's move on. Let's stay, but I want, I mean, I'm going to stay in chapter one because okay. just 18 verses down in yeah. verse 18, it says, no one has ever seen God. It is only the son himself, God, who is close to the father's heart and who, uh, who has made him known. Yeah. So this is so your this, favorite translation, or the one that you often that you often turn to. This is the NRSV. Whoop. Um, <laughs> he says himself, God. Yeah. What? Oh, uh, I, I have blown your mind. Well, I'm 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 looking at the NRSV. Unless I need to look at the updated edition. I'm, I'm in I'm in the NRSV updated. Yeah. Oh, it's that's the update. They changed that. All right, hang on a minute. I'm about to get real <laughs> upset. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Okay, yeah, this is... Oh, so so if I go to uh, the NRSV... Uh... So this is up until last year, this is how the NRSV read. Okay. Uh, no one has ever seen God. It is God the Son who is close to the Father's heart who has made him known. Now this, oh. now this is outright nonsensical too, because here's the problem. Uh, this passage has a variant reading in the manuscripts, uh, and it either reads... Monogenes Huios, which would be the uh, traditionally only begotten son, mm -hmm. but would really mean unique or only son. And then there's another tradition that reads Monogenes Theos, so only or unique God. Mm. So it's either one or the other. And what the NRSV seems to be trying to do is split the difference. <laughs> Say, let's <laughs> include both of them. Let's shoot um, right between them. Yeah. And it, it's complex because the difference between these two in the earliest periods of the transmission of, of New Testament manuscripts would be the difference of a single letter because they use what are called nomina sacra, uh, sacred names, holy names. Um, so divine names and divine titles were abbreviated. And frequently what it was was the first and the last letter of the word. So uh, Jesus Christ. If you saw Jesus's name, it's Iota, Eta, uh, Sigma, Omicron, Ypsilon, Sigma. And so you would just have 
uh, the iota and the sigma, IS, and they would be brought together, and then there would be a little line over the top of them, indicating this is an abbreviation for something. And so that's one that's one of the nomina sacra. So this phrase, monogeniste uh, os or hui os, would be reduced to just um, a couple of letters. And so the difference would be between a theta and an epsilon. Um, those aren't letters that are easily confused, but in this whole title, it would come down to one letter. So it would not be surprising for that to get mixed up. Now, monogenes theos would be the only time that phrase ever occurs anywhere. Um, John uses monogenes huios several times throughout the Gospel of John. And so that would be, if we're going by consistency, if we're going by what the author uses elsewhere, it would have to be unique son. Mm. Now, there's a principle of textual criticism uh, that they call uh, lectio difficilior, or the more difficult reading. And the principle there is that usually, not always, but usually, a change is implemented where someone tries to make a reading simpler. Right. It is rare that the change goes from a simple reading to a more difficult reading. And so the argument goes, well, monogenes theos is, would be the more difficult reading since it doesn't agree with anything else. Therefore, that must be the earlier reading. Mm. Now, there, there are two problems with this. And one is that all that helps you figure out is between two manuscripts, which manuscript likely has the earlier reading. That does not necessarily mean that was the original reading right. because that's requiring, requiring we accept that the author actually said the only God. Jesus is the only God here, which would conflict with the entire rest of uh, the Gospel of John. And the other problem is when we're getting into the Christological controversies, Monogenes Theos would be the more useful reading for a lot of Christians. And so it is no longer—I I don't think Lectio Difficilior is in play um, in 3rd, 4th century CE. And so there, there are a handful of different arguments, but basically it's not settled— what is supposed to be here? And okay. so John 1.18, I don't think any, but you, I don't think you can appeal to that as proof that John calls Jesus God. Um, there's a, there's a because, very- Because original, like the, er, the earliest texts that we have disagree with each other on what it says. Uh, yeah. And I, and I think the, okay. um, the earliest one says, the earliest one that we have, I, it's been a while since I've looked at this, so I don't know which one is earliest. But but yeah, in short, when we go look at the earliest manuscripts that we have, I think one of them may say uh, Theos and a couple others say uh, Huios. And ultimately, Huios becomes the one that everybody settles on. Um, but there's an argument to make that, that Theos was original. And so uh, Bruce Metzger um, published this book back in the 70s, uh, Textual Commentary on the Greek New Testament. And, uh, and basically, he's going through all of the main textual issues, textual problems. And uh, the entry on here uh, says, oh yeah, Lectio Difficilior, and um, says that uh, Theos is probably earlier than Huios, but then there's the editors of the volume have a little note saying, 
this is not likely because this <laughs> would require the author actually have written this and and that just doesn't make any sense. Um, and so it's it's debated, it's controversial. If someone one is dogmatically defending the deity of Christ in, in the deity of Christ in the sense of the Trinity, then they're going to be like, oh, that makes more sense. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And if somebody is not committed to that, then the Huios reading is going to make more sense. Um, and so I, I think the Huios reading obviously makes more sense because I am not dogmatically committed to defending the notion that uh, Jesus is God. No. Uh, although if, if, I, if after this not, episode, people will accuse you of being dogmatically uh, defending the opposite position. Oh, so. gosh. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. Well, I get accused of that no matter what. Yeah. So. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, all right, I'm moving on. Uh, let's go to chapter eight of John. Uh, mm -hmm. Ray down at the bottom of chapter eight, uh, yeah. verse 58, it says, uh, Jesus said to them, very, very, verily, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. Yeah, this one's fun. This yeah, because I, I am, we recognize from, from the, uh, the Hebrew Bible as being a reference to a name for God, right? Kind of, yeah. A name for God. Um, there are levels to this, but uh, let's start with I am. I am is something that we find, uh, there are two different groups of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. And in Greek, this is egoimi. Now, the thing about egoimi is, is this is a loaded phrase. This is a coded reference to God's name, but it's not actually God's name. This is a reference to a statement in Exodus 3.14, which in the Hebrew, uh, Moses asked God, um, who should I say sent me? And God says uh, in Hebrew, echia asher echia, I will be what I will be, or I am what I am. Tell them echia sent you. Tell them I am sent you. Now in the, in the Greek translation, the Septuagint, I am what I am is actually translated uh, into a sentence. Egoimiho'on, I am the one who is, or I am the being one. 
And then you say again, tell them, Egwimi, I am sent you. But Egwimi is also the way that another Hebrew phrase is rendered in um, other parts of the Bible, specifically Deutero-Isaiah, but Deuteronomy, I think, has it as well, where God says, I am he. There are a bunch of places where, oh, the, per- the, the one who can do this, the one who can do that, tell them, I am he, or something like that. And that is anihu in Hebrew. But that also gets translated into Greek in the Septuagint as egoimi. So we've taken these two different kind of divine self-identifications and used the same Greek phrase to render them. And so this is now pregnant with import uh, for uh, regarding the divine name, even though neither of them is actually Adonai, neither of them is the Tetragrammaton, but it's a coded reference to that. Right. So John has Jesus saying, I am, I am the good shepherd, I am the door, I am the vine, the true vine, all this kind of stuff, and, and that's me each time. And so here we have before Abraham was, and most translations have before Abraham was, comma, I am. And then the, uh, they get mad at him and, and cast stones at him. And so yeah. there, there are two um, grounds on which people argue that this is identifying Jesus as God. The first is Jesus saying, I am is like Jesus saying, I am God. Now, it's not that. It is Jesus kind of winking at them saying, look at me using this coded reference to the divine name. And then they get upset at him. And um, I've argue, I uh, argue in, in my book uh, that the divine name was a communicable vehicle of divine agency. This is how you uh, activated or enlivened the standing stone, the divine image, was by writing the divine name on it. And provided the materials were right, provided the authority was right, when you imposed the divine name that charged the, the material media with the divine presence, which allowed the material media to presence the deity, manifest the presence, the power, the authority of the deity. And so in Greco-Roman period Judaism, we begin to see figures popping up in stories that are angels, that are exalted humans, that are figures who are not God, but have God's name and so are allowed to do the things that only God is supposed to do. And this starts in the Hebrew Bible with the angel of the Lord where uh, we have these stories like uh, when uh, God appears to Moses in Exodus 3, verse 2 says it's the angel of God. But in verse 5, the angel says, I am the God of your father, the God of Isaac, the God of uh, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Originally, that story was about God themselves visiting Moses, and somebody scribbled in Malach before Adonai to kind of obscure God's presence. No, no, no. It was kind of an angel. It was kind of God. Mm -hmm. And so we've got this tradition of an angel that's going around saying, I am God, but is not God. And so in in Exodus 23, God says, look, I'm sending an angel before you to guide you on the way. Don't tick him off. Uh, Don't uh, disobey him because he does not have to forgive your sins because my name is in him. And I argue that this is a way to rationalize what's going on with this angel who's going around saying, I am God. They can say that because my name is in him. They are the authorized possessor or bearer of my name. And we see this in the Greco-Roman period. There's an angel named Yahuel who tells Abraham in the apocalypse of Abraham, uh, I'm able to do all these things by virtue of the divine name which dwells in me. 
And then we have uh, Metatron, who is confused for Adonai. Somebody, uh, there's a verse where somebody says, hey, that says that's Adonai. And, and the rabbi says, no, no, that's just Metatron. But Metatron has God's name. And so the text can refer to Metatron as God. Uh, and then we have um, the Son of Man in the Anakic tradition talks about being endowed with uh, the divine name before the creation of the earth. And this is why all the world will bow down and worship the son of man. Um, and so there's a tradition already in place whereby somebody is the authorized possessor or bearer of the divine name. And because of that, they're allowed to do what only God is supposed to do, be able to do. And they're allowed to assert identification with God. And so my, my argument is that uh, by giving this little wink and saying, ego we me, if you guys know what I mean, <laughs> Jesus is saying, guess who's the possessor of the divine name? Guess who is the authorized bearer? And this is a claim to a, a type of deity. This is a claim to being uh, this exalted human or this um, name-bearing angel. And this is akin to saying, I'm divine, which is a, a type of blasphemy. And so a lot of people will say they wouldn't have tried to stone him for any other reason but claiming to be God. But blasphemy includes so many more things than just right. claiming to be God. Right. Yes. I, so, that makes sense to me. Uh, I'm glad I, it makes sense to you. It doesn't <laughs> seem to comp compute for, um, for an awful lot of folks. But yeah, just, you know, just saying, hey, God sucks, that that would be a type of blasphemy. Um, yeah. Any kind of trying to denigrate, demean, or lower God or even just God's name is a, a form of blasphemy. Well, and he's saying this to a group of, of rabbis, right? He's saying this to a group of... Uh, is, is that what it is? It's a group well, of rabbis? Here, uh, well, John tends to kind of reduce <clears throat> all of the different groups to just the Jews. The Jews. Yeah, because John is... John is the most anti-Semitic of, of the Gospels. Oh, okay. Um, and tends to be pretty, um, tends to, to speak pretty demeaningly. That's um, true. About uh, th the Jews. So, yes, it says, and then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And, mm -hmm. says, and that's when he says, uh, before Abraham was, I am. Does it, in the, uh, in the, in the Greek... Mm -hmm. Because because before Abraham was I am when you yeah. when you have the the past tense of was and then the present tense of am right is it is it basically the same uh, in the Greek? It is it is very very similar. Makes it stand out in that way that you know the phrase I am isn't just a uh, a reference to the past but is a is a reference to something greater or something different. That's that's what the consensus view is is that this is just grammatically unusual enough to be a cue yeah. to this. There's something more going on here. Wink, wink. Yeah. Um, however, there, there are some folks who will argue that the I am could be, could mean I was and continue to be. Okay. And so there is an argument to make for that. I don't think it's particularly strong. It's certainly a minority view among grammarians. Uh, but but yeah, I would argue that it it is just it is unusual enough in Greek to be kind of like English, where they're like, "What's going on there?" Okay. And what's going on there is is Jesus is saying, "Hey, guess who got the divine name?" Yeah, <laughs> wasn't you? And, and then they picked up stones, and he had to hide and run away. Right. Um, okay. 
Uh, I'm going to move on. This is uh, to chapter, what am I in? Chapter 10. Yeah. Chapter 10. Chapter 10. Verse 30 mm-hmm. says very clearly, the Father <laughs> and I mm-hmm. are one. Case closed, you lose. <laughs> yeah. So um, this is uh, something that uh, people like to uh, appeal to, to show that uh, God and Jesus are one. There's, a, there's The question, though, is what does it mean to be one? Because there, you can conceive of a lot of different ways that two different people could be one. I mean, it talks about how a man will leave his father and mother and cling unto his wife, and they will be one flesh. Yeah. And, like, not literally, but... Uh, so we've got to ask the question of what does it mean to be one? Luckily... When it, when it comes to this podcast, you and I are one. Yeah. Um, in a lot of different ways, except for probably uh, the ways you're thinking of. Uh, <laughs> and here, your is a reference to the listener. Uh, or viewer... Um, and, or both. Um, so luckily we, we have some, we have a clue here in John 10, uh, because at the end of, uh, John 10, 38, uh, Jesus says, the father is in me and I in him. So, Mm. so this, this seems to be a reference to how they're one. He's in me. I'm in him. Um, this is, this is a oneness that, uh, needs further exploration. Luckily, we get further exploration, right. exploration and explanation in John 17, the intercessory prayer. Uh, uh, we have three different spots in the intercessory prayer where Jesus is praying for his followers. Um, and he says uh, in verse 11, in the middle of it, I'll start off, where's the NRSV? Okay. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me. Wink, wink, your name that you have given me. So Jesus here is claiming to have the divine name so that they may be one as we are one. Ah. And then a little further down, I think we're looking at uh, 21. Yes. That they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be one in us. So chapter 10 is not talking about a unique kind of oneness because at the end Jesus explains I'm in him he's in me and now here in chapter 17 Jesus is praying that his followers be one with Jesus and and God just like Jesus and God are one and here we actually go back to the same idea they may be in us um I and you Uh, you are in me, they may also be in us. So whatever oneness Jesus is talking about in John 10, 30 is the exact same kind of oneness Jesus prays his followers will achieve with each other and with Jesus and God. And and we have it again uh, in verse 22, the glory that you have given me. And this is something that people also will point out. They'll say, well, um, Isaiah says, my, my glory I do not give to any other. So obviously, mm-hmm. if Jesus has God's glory, that's because Jesus is God. No, Jesus says, you gave me your glory so that they may be one as we are one, I in them. So now Jesus is not just in God. God Jesus is also in his followers. And you and me, that they may be completely one. So the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So wow. 
So unless got, it's it's everybody in everybody. It yeah, is, uh, it is one big. We're not going to worry about what one big thing it is, but um, <laughs> Jesus is, or at least the gospel, the author of the Gospel of John is explaining what this oneness means, and it is a unity. It is a connection. It is not one being. It yeah. is not one substance. That is a much later development. Well, and even earlier in that same chapter, in chapter 17, verse 3, mm-hmm. uh, Jesus explicitly says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Which right. seems to be a really strong distinction between these two yeah. entities. He's Because one thing he doesn't say is that they may know you, the other guy that is part of that is the me. one true God of which I am also a part, um, just says the only true, you're the only true God. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not a part of this. Um, and, uh, and back in, in chapter 10, uh, the, it says they, they try to stone him again, and people will argue, ah, ah, there's the stoning. That means that Jesus was claiming to be God. No, it just means they thought he committed blasphemy. And saying, I, God and me are one, even uh, a kind of unity type of one would still be considered blasphemy. And then yeah. he says, well, for, for which of my good works are you stoning me, brethren? And um, they said, not for good work, but for blasphemy, because, and I'm going to read from the NRSV, because you, though only a human being, are making yourself God. Now, so a lot of people understand this to be the author suggesting that the Jewish folks correctly understood Jesus to be identifying himself as God. And that's wrong. Again, <laughs> it again, does seem to say that, Dan. It seems to say that because you're reading a poor English translation. Because if you look in the Greek, you are once again missing the definite article. And we have some parallelism going on here. You being man, being human, it's anthropos. There's no definite article. So it's not saying you being the human. It, you being human, as in qualitative, right. having the, the qualities of, of a human, make yourself theon, which again, does not have the definite article. So the parallel would suggest that you being human, make yourself divine. In other words, you having the qualities of a human are trying to insist that you actually have the qualities of a deity. Right. And so it is okay. not identifying Jesus, not saying Jesus is trying to make himself the very God of Israel, but just divine. And right. Jesus's response verifies that because Jesus quotes Psalm 82. Well, hey guys, your scripture says you are gods. Um, every one of you are gods and um, sons of the most high. If he called those people gods, then why are you getting upset with me for saying I'm the son of God? If they if they understood Jesus to be saying, I'm the God of Israel, his response would be a complete straw man. It would not be addressing their claim. If they are accusing Jesus of making himself a God, divine, then his response is perfectly on target. Because they're saying, you're saying you're a God, and he says, the scriptures say humans are gods— so I'm yeah. off the hook because right. so humans can be gods. And so you've got nothing on me. And so the the argument that Jesus makes is entirely fallacious if we understand John 10, 33 to be saying Jesus is making himself the very God of Israel. He's not doing any such thing whatsoever. <laughs>
What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. All right. Uh, you know, the the last thing that I had was, uh, was from... Uh, chapter 20 verse 28 it's doubting thomas finally no longer yes. doubting yes. and saying uh and, and thomas answered him my lord and my god yes uh and we we don't have a lot of time for this one so let's just, let's okay. just power through it quick yeah so so basically this is an, an adaptation of the shema and also paul talks about kind of expands the shema talks about one lord and one god um thomas is referring to Jesus as God. But here, notice, it's not the narrator, it's not Jesus, it's somebody else recognizing that Jesus is manifesting the presence of God, which is precisely what divine images do. So you can refer to a divine image as the God. This is, and and the divine image, if it is sentient, can refer to itself as the God. Go back to Exodus 3, it's the angel of the Lord who then says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So, so Thomas saying, my Lord and my God is appealing to this idea that Jesus is functioning like a divine image. Jesus, as the authorized bearer of the divine name, is bearing the presence of God, is manifesting the presence of God, and could even go so far as to identify as God. But again... There's still some squishiness here because Jesus is not saying, I am God. Jesus is allowing a follower to say that. So yeah. there is still a little bit of distance between um, what's going on and, and Jesus actually explicitly identifying as God. So the Trinitarian concept of God is a very different concept from what we have in the Gospel of John, even though it gets right up next to it. It is not it does not have the philosophical frameworks available to it yet to assert Jesus is God the way the Trinitarians would later determine. Well, since you've been saying it, Dan, <laughs> let's go on to our next segment because the next thing is Trini the Trinity. What does that mean? So, Dan. Yes. We've got this concept of the Trinity. You keep referring to it. Mm -hmm. What is it? What are we talking about? Why is it? Why, why have we? I mean, it. I. It's not in the Bible itself, right? No, we don't have. We don't have the, the word Trinity. We don't have any word or even any concept presented that is like what is now believed and understood, believed as and understood to be the Trinity. Right. My my argument is that the conceptual package of the Trinity, the framework of the Trinity, develops between the 2nd and the 5th centuries CE. We get our, our, our most 
our kind of main articulation of the doctrine of the Trinity at the Council of Nicaea in 325 CE. And that is where there is a debate over whether or not Jesus, whether or not there was a time when Jesus didn't exist and whether or not Jesus is subordinate to the Father or equal to the Father. And Arius uh, is basically defeated uh, and we sign the, the Nicene Creed, which argues that uh, this concept for this concept of consubstantiality. And this is the first time that Christians actually assert this notion of consubstantiality as a whole. The idea being that the Trinity is comprises three different persons within the one being that is God. And uh, we'll, we'll get into a little more detail about that in a moment, but the whole reason this develops is because we've got this New Testament that seems to be treating Jesus as having some kind of special relationship with God, but also seems to be distinguishing Jesus from God. And we just finished talking about the Gospel of John, which is coming really, really close to saying Jesus is God without actually having Jesus come out and say it. But then now that the New Testament has come together, we now have to consider all these other texts, all Paul's texts. We got to look at the Gospel of Mark. We got to look at all these other texts, and we've got to create a unifying framework that makes all of them work together. So how can Jesus be all of these things at the same time? And we've got to come up with a framework that is philosophically defensible uh, to the Greco-Roman intelligentsia. Because in this time period, uh, a group of Christians, the the educated Christians, uh, we now refer to them uh, as apologists, are trying to kind of spread the gospel among the more educated uh, Greco-Roman populations, and they need to make it palatable to folks who are educated in uh, Middle and then uh, later Neoplatonic thought, in Stoicism, in Pythagoreanism, in Epicureanism. And there's kind of this, um, there are a bunch of different ways people are going about trying to um, intellectualize the gospel, which requires this unifying framework. So we have people talking about, well, Jesus seems to be God, but let's figure out how. And um, in the previous segment, I, I mentioned that Philo identifies the Logos as a second God. We also have Justin Martyr, one of the early apologists, uh, who's writing a, right in the middle of the second century CE, right around 150 CE, who also refers to Jesus as the Logos, as another God. And so in the earliest periods, we're still kind of um, trying to figure out how to, to make this work, and we're using a bunch of different ideas. By the end of the second century, we've got this, this word Trinity, but we, we're not exactly sure how to fill it out. Uh, it's a little kid in a big oversized suit coat. It just, <laughs> it's not, uh, you know, he's not able to walk without tripping over himself yet. Um, and so what happens is, is we just have a bunch of people in, in texts that they're writing where they're, they're engaging in this kind of dialectic back and forth with imaginary opponents. Sometimes they're, they're real opponents, but usually it's um, imaginary opponents, or they're at least representing the arguments of real opponents, but probably not in perfectly accurate ways. Right. Trying to consolidate all these things and trying to use Greco-Roman philosophical frameworks to make it all fit together. And the main principles we have are, well, we got these three people. 
We got God, we got Jesus, and we got the Holy Ghost. Now, the Holy Ghost is is kind of an outlier, an afterthought. This is just somebody, it's like, don't forget the Holy Ghost. And so people are like, oh, okay, the Holy Ghost too. Yeah, we um, may have to do a show about the Holy Ghost, because I am very confused <laughs> about who and or what that is. And it's, and it's different from text to text, exactly what the, <laughs> the Holy Ghost is. But yeah, I think that would be... That would be a fun show to do. Um, and so some of the things that that develop are, are concerns for, well, one, how many gods are there? Uh, and, and pretty quickly, it's like, well, we, we can only recognize one uh, highest god. And so, we, you know, we can recognize demons and we can recognize angels and all of these things, but we don't want to call them gods. Uh, they are subordinate, they are contingent, so uh, they don't deserve that title. And so pretty quickly they decided, well, because Judaism is well known as kind of the uh, the only one God religion, and this is one God rhetoric, this is not monotheism as we understand it right. today, we, we should find a way to make Jesus and God one God, whether it's through this emanation idea, whether it's through some other concept. And, um, and we get this, um, this bishop in Alexandria named uh, Arius, who is looking at the New Testament and says it's very clear that Jesus is subordinate to God and that Jesus is a creation of God, which means that there was a time when Jesus didn't exist. And then God created Jesus. And this was actually pretty standard in the third century CE, but by the fourth century CE, we're exalting Jesus more and more. Mm. And so it begins to become problematic to say Jesus, there was a time when Jesus didn't exist and, and that Jesus is subordinate. Because one of the main two features of, of deity is one, that it is eternal, it has always existed. And two, that there is no change, there is no hierarchy, there is no alteration in deity. It is always the same and it can never change. And so it was undermining the attempt to make the gospel palatable to Greco-Roman intelligentsia if their concept was flatly contradicting the received wisdom of Greek philosophy. And so by the beginning of the 4th century, that's a problem. We call the Council of Nicaea. We get a bunch of bishops together. There are different accounts of how many bishops were there. But in short, uh, Arius and a couple of his buddies are in the minority. They get overruled. Uh, they get slapped around. Literally, this is where St. Nicholas is supposed to have slapped uh, Arius. <laughs> um, oh, Santa Claus, calm yeah. down. <laughs> Um, we're giving out gifts and punching heretics and, and we're all out of gifts. Um, <laughs> so there's, there's an account that suggests that, that, uh, Constantine, who is the, the Roman emperor who has convened the council of Nicaea, basically he wants his kids to stop fighting. Right. So he's calling a family meeting and he's just like, I don't care what you figure out, figure it out. And so, and, sorry, you, you mentioned the guys, who were the guys that, uh, Nicholas slapped? Arius. The, the, Arius and and what was Arius's position? He he was the one saying that one Jesus was subordinate to God the Father okay. and two there was a time when Jesus did not exist. And up until around uh the beginning of the 4th century CE uh, pretty much everybody would have agreed with him to to one degree or another. 
but now it was becoming increasingly problematic. So the majority of bishops were like, no, no, they're, um, they're the same. And you get the hammering out of this concept of homoousios, which is translated as consubstantiality. Basically, the idea is they are equal and co-eternal because they are all of the same substance. Right. And so you can't divide the substance, but you also can't confuse the persons. And so when, when we think of a person today, we think of a being who also has a psychological unity, a single psychological identity. And what they did was basically divide the idea of the psychological identity and the being and say, now that they're different and one is subordinate or maybe not subordinate, maybe that's a bad word, (laughs) but one is internal to the other. We can have multiple psychological identities inhabiting the one being, the one substantial being. Um, and so th- this was a, a philosophical way of making this all work. And it was uh, literally imperial might that kept it together. Because mm. Constantine then said, okay, everybody sign on the dotted line or you get exiled. And there's a story that one of the bishops came up and really quickly added a little iota to make it uh, homo oisios, uh, which would be of like substance rather than of the same substance, uh, and then, you know, banished. Um, yeah. And so you can't, Arius, just, you can't just sneak in a letter. Come yeah, on, guys. Yeah, we all know. They tried. No, there's no, we don't know if, if Santa Claus punched him too, but... <laughs> But oh, Arius gets. We know. We know. <laughs> he punched him. But Arius gets exiled, and um, and this becomes the Nicene Creed. And then we have another controversy that pops up that is settled a century later in the Council of Chalcedon, and that controversy was okay. Jesus is God, but Jesus was also a human. How's that work? Is it 50-50? <laughs> and and that's where they came up with uh, what's called the hypostatic union where Jesus is 100% God, but Jesus is 100% human. How does that work? Shut up. Yeah. It's, it's a mystery. We're not, it's, it just is the way it is. And, and what you see in, in these arguments is basically, we just need to make it work. And so we just need to come up with an argument that is plausible enough that everybody can be like, yeah, I can get on board with that. Okay, then get on board with it. Sign right here. Okay, anybody you see saying anything else, you report them to us. We're going to exile them, and we're going to use the empire to enforce this new philosophical framework. Doesn't make a ton of sense. It makes enough sense that we can threaten people if they don't agree with it. And so it is the the institution of the church is the only reason that the concept of the Trinity survived, because without the Roman Empire and all of the might and the coercion and the force behind it, uh, it would have gone the way of the Dodo long, long ago. I'm just, you know, one of the questions that comes up for me is, did that era, Greco-Roman period, did everything have to be more uh, solid? Did they not have figurative ideas? Because it seems like, you know, in our, our first segment, we're talking about John, you know, in John, we're talking about Jesus using figurative ideas or, you know, ideas yeah. of I am God in the way that like God is me and you all could be God. And like, 
we're all, you know, we're all going to be part of God or we're going to be in right. God and God's going to yeah. be in us. And like, he's using language that makes perfect sense to me if we're thinking figuratively. Yeah. And there's no reason why we can't think figuratively about it. It makes sense. Like throughout the Bible, there's figurative language all the time. Yeah. It, it, did something get more literal in the uh, in the fourth century or something? So what happened is the church became part of a powerful institution that had oversight over the entire population. And suddenly the ideas that resonated with different groups and everybody just kind of was drawn to the group or the idea that resonated with them, you now had a powerful social institution that needed to harmonize things and needed everything to work together in order to be able to establish boundaries and in order to be able to say, this one's in, this one's out. Uh, because boundary maintenance becomes monumentally important in a, in a circumstance like that, where you are, there's a very strong in-group and you are opposed to the out-group and you want to make sure that you know who is who. And so it had to be systematized. It all has to be reduced to something that... Uh, that we can uh, draw lines around in a very simple binary way. And so, yeah, that's exactly what happened is initially you had your Markin folks who were like, yeah, Jesus is really human-like and Jesus is doing this and that and, and um, you know, the Messianic secret, yay. And then you had your Lukes and then you had your uh, Matthews who were the Judaizers who was like, law of Moses, man, yeah, we got to keep it. And, and, you had your Johns who were their own uh, little group of people and everybody was just happy doing their own thing. But when you all bring it, when you bring them all together and you say, this is now one book we need then. And there's a social institution that is, um, has authority over all the people who are associated with this one book. Suddenly they're not going to allow them to operate, you know, function in their own little corners of this thing. We need to bring it all together. We need unity. And that's precisely what Constantine was doing, is saying there's too much disunity. I don't care how you fix it. Just fix it. <laughs> and so that is imposing that unifying framework, which results in, well, Greek philosophical ideas are going to be the most efficient and effective means of doing this. Let's come up with Greek philosophical ideas that are going to allow us to say all the texts uh, fit together. Uh, and here's what they are all, they're all pointing in the same direction. And here's the thing that they're pointing at. And don't ask how it works because we're just going to exile you. Yeah. Um, and so it is, it is um, institutional pressure, imperialism that is the reason that the Trinity survived in the way it has. But, and, and the, the thing that a lot of people refuse to acknowledge is the Trinity is the result of that systematization, that unifying framework. Prior to the unifying framework, when the texts were written, there was no Trinity because no one was forced to try to reduce it to a single conceptual framework. Everyone was allowed to let it work whatever way resonated with them. And so the author of John had no concept of Jesus as God and anything remotely approximating the way the Trinity would later shake out, uh, which is why uh, I just, 
you can't say that Jesus is God in, in the gospel of John, at least in no way, shape or form, like the way you say Jesus is God in the Trinity. Yeah. You know, as an outsider, as a non-believer in this, I look at it and I just don't see the problem. You know, I, I feel like God, I feel like Jesus invoking God, or like you like to say, you know, sort of housing God's name or, or, or you know, housing God's authority mm-hmm. in himself seems plenty to me. Like this can be a being that has divinity you know, sort of instilled in him by virtue of his uh, authority, his title, his, uh, his, his sort of provenance. But, like, it doesn't feel problematic to me yeah. looking at it for it to be, for, for, for him not to be God himself. Yeah. You know what I mean? It feels actually more problematic for him <laughs> to be God. Like, that feels yeah. wildly problematic. You've created so many more problems than you've solved. Yeah, and and I, I feel the same way. That's that's probably exactly how it happened. Is you had a lot of people who were like, "Oh yeah, that's totally intuitive. I get it." And then somebody was like, nah, "It doesn't work for me." But then once you have the two of them as part of the same institution, and the institutions like agree, then you gotta <laughs> you gotta figure out a way to um, to agree, which always which has one of two ways of working. One per, one defeats the other. Or you create a new third thing that tries to reconcile the two. And that's what happened. We created the new third thing, which was the Trinity. And um, and Greek philosophy was the way. And and it was also, they were also arguing with the philosophers and the Gnostics and others. And and this is how a lot of the doctrines of earlier early Christianity developed, was Greek philosophers, philosophers were like, the resurrection, but Flesh can't be eternal. Flesh is changing. Flesh is, uh, or it can't be divine. Flesh is, um, it's co-eternal. The material world has always been there, but it's not divine. Uh, Why would you even want back a body that that decomposed, that was lost at sea, that maybe was eaten by an animal and passed through its digestive system? Why would you want that body back? They were like, this is weird, guys. What are you doing? And they had to be like, well, look, (laughs) okay. (laughs) No, um, all mate- the material world is contingent upon God. God created it out of nothing. Yeah, that's that's what happened. And and then they came up with an argument that was like, okay, that's different. That's new. I see where you're going. I want to sign up for your newsletter. Um, and so the, the idea of creation out of nothing was an invention of the late second century CE. In fact, we can say it was between 170 and 180 CE that we created the doctrine of creation out of nothing in order to respond to criticisms from Greek philosophy. And so the the doctrines of, of Christianity develop out of trying to rec- reconcile everything that's going on um, under this social institution while also trying to make it sound defensible to the broader intellectual world, which is deeply entrenched in Greek philosophy. Wow. All right. Finally, I think this is a good a good note to end on. What's your favorite Trinity metaphor? We got the shamrock. We got uh, uh, the states of water. I like that one. Have you heard that one? Uh, you can yeah, uh, you know yeah. solid liquid which gas, which is um, 
That's the uh, that's modalism. That's the like, heresy I, of modalism. <laughs> uh, I, there's the 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 three headed dog. Uh, that's a that's another <laughs> Cerberus. <laughs> um, the I forget what movie it was. Shoot, I forget what movie it is. But there's there's a movie where somebody is kind of going to um to chat with a priest, but is kind uh-huh. of uh being annoying to him, <laughs> and he's like, "Is the Trinity like? Is it like Rice Krispies with snap crackle and pop?" Um, and All the right. priest is like, "What do you want?" <laughs> <laughs> I like. Okay, we're sticking with Snap, Crackle, and Pop. Uh, that's it for this week's show. If you friends at home would like to write into us about uh, any questions that you might have or uh, future ideas for shows, please feel free to do so. Contact at dataoverdogmapod.com. Uh, or if you would like to support the show, gain early access to an ad-free version of every episode and also be a part of how this show goes, you can become a patron over on patreon.com slash data over dogma. That's it for us. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you again next week. Bye, everybody. Data Over Dogma is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. It is a production of Data Over Dogma Media, LLC. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.